0: a great pleasure now to uh, introduce this session which will focus on bringing a device to the market we will not embark into discussions about uh, efficiency safety bleeding complications our usual discussions when it goes about these device. this session is about the challenges, the barriers, uh, the successes of bringing a device uh, into first-in-man and then uh, to market approval. Uh, and uh, we couldn't have found uh, any better to talk about us and to, to set the scene than Maurice Bookbinder, who uh, I would describe as a serial offender, um, <laughs> he's uh, run uh, several uh, startups, he's a pioneer. Uh, He's also a bloody good uh, interventional cardiologist. He's got all my respect. And he has got a story to tell now about startup challenges and alternative funding mechanisms. Maurice.
1: Thank you very much, Andreas. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, Alexandra and the rest of the committee, thank you for their kind invitation. So when putting this uh, talk together, I had to kind of a little bit do it blind, not knowing what the context was. But it actually works well with what we discussed earlier today. The the general dream of having industry and uh, academia come together and uh, to really foster new ideas is a great thing, but there are realities that we have to deal with. And for for this uh, 20-minute discussion, I wanted to kind of give a little bit of uh, definitions of what we're talking about. What is medtech? We talked a lot about uh, a variety of industry about sponsors and whatnot, but medtech industry, I think, is something unique, and it is really something that plays an important role in lives of patients around the world. In this context, what I will be calling medtech refers to medical devices intended for use for therapeutic as well as diagnostic purposes, and together with other segments of the larger healthcare sector, medtech companies have contributed to dramatic improvements in health over the last few decades. When you look at the innovation and what has happened, health med or healthcare innovation has really brought improvement let's say from the 80s to 2000 with 4% increase in life expectancy. Clearly not all because of medtech innovation, but has contributed to an increase in life expectancy, a decrease in annual mortality rates for various illnesses and certainly decreased, also improved the elderly disabilities. But also it has provided significant amount of jobs, almost uh, 350,000 direct jobs in the U.S., and a, a, a almost uh, 1,600,000 indirect jobs, both of scientists, engineers, mostly in small entrepreneurial companies that have helped drive, drive this industry. And my comments would be a little bit of U.S.-centric, if you, if you pardon me, but... This is what I know. And in the U.S., medtech industry has played an essential role in the economy itself, where, for example, a snapshot in 2006, companies in that space shipped almost $123 billion worth of product and paid $21.5 billion in salaries. So this is for one country alone and one year alone in 2006. Clearly, we chose 2006 because things would look bad after 2008 and therefore uh, it was more of the rosy picture. Employees in the medtech field earn above average wages in general because of their level of education, approximately 6,000 per year because of who that workforce is all about. Internationally, the US has been known as the global consumer or top consumer of medical devices as well as the world's leading producer The country achieved this leadership position through decades of strong, sustained investment in research and development as we spoke this morning, both either alone or in in venture, in company with ventures of capital communities. As a result, the MedTech field is amongst a limited number of industries in which the U.S. has always maintained a trade surplus. In 2007, the total MedTech trade surplus was at $5.4 billion. Importantly, with respect to what we're talking about today, innovation in the medtech industry has been driven by small entrepreneurial companies with a passion for discovering safer, more effective ways to diagnose and treat patients. Of all medtech companies, interestingly, 80% have fewer than 50 employees. These small startups as we've learned to know them are the engine that fuels the development of new devices which are often ultimately acquired by the larger companies or so-called strategic as they mature. Through the combined efforts of both small and large medtech companies alike, R&D investment in the industry more than doubled in the 90s and it continued to outpace the R&D investment of companies in other US manufacturing industry by nearly twofold. So with all this introduction saying how important what we're doing is, there is quite a bit of headwind these days for startups. So from the day that you have an idea, what do you do? What are you faced with? What are the challenges? That is if the idea is worthy to move forward. Number one, we talked a lot this morning, and it's appropriate, we will continue to talk a lot, is regulatory hurdles, both from the FDA, we heard representatives of it, EU, and importantly, from the globalization of regulatory pathways, which to me is a negative because I want it to be controversial and I would like to debate that later on. It's not necessarily all positive. There have been also, as you all know, a decrease in investment capital all over the world. This is combined with fewer exits due to consolidation of acquirers in the US and worldwide and reduction of successful initial public offerings have led to really lukewarm investment climate in med tech or startups. Interesting also, higher thresholds with needs for larger clinical trials, both to include safety, efficacy, endpoints, as discussed in the last panel, is also significant headwind against startups. And finally, which I will not have time to talk about, that's the subject of another conference, the national healthcare policies in the U.S. and worldwide, with coverage and reimbursement, in itself is a significant headwind. So let's talk about the barrier first about regulatory and how does it come from my perspective. Since the medical device amendment back nearly 35 years ago, the MedTech has been described as a pendulum that swings between risk tolerance and risk averse. Over the past few years, the FDA seems to be in the midst of yet another swing towards more risk averse practices. And the forces that drive this oscillation are powerful and deeply rooted in the culture of the FDA, despite what Andrew Phibes said earlier, as well as the shifting expectation imposed on the agency by political forces, namely the administration. Patients, the public, the media, medtech employees, scientific community, practicing physicians, and politicians, for better or worse, all play a role in influencing the FDA's position. The agency's challenge is clearly to anchor its policies in the position that best serves the public and is devoid of significant shifts from political influences, but that does not always happen. The FDA, as in the EU, the target is to balance the activity at some point between the two extremes. However, striking an appropriate balance can be difficult, particularly when prevalent beliefs and behaviors are based on perception, headlines, as we heard from the Daily Mail, and anecdotes with little data. U.S. patients, also we've heard this this morning, are increasingly less likely to be first to have access to innovative new medical technologies, even though though these devices have been invented in the United States. Unfortunately, as medtech innovators and investors anticipate time-consuming, expensive regulatory processes, a growing number are taking the devices elsewhere before making them available to American patients. So let's analyze what the regulatory, what the effect of this, what we've been talking about all morning, and what is the data. And you can look from 1999 to 2009, a decade, and you can look at the 510K clearances and PMA approvals that have actually happened from the applications seen on the axes, on the y- and the x-axis, you could see a dramatic downturn rather than upturn. So this is really significant in the minds of investors. The impacts of the FDA delays in terms of time and cost. Let's look at this. Concept development and proof of concept, clinical development, process to obtain an IDE, safety and feasibility study, pivotal clinical trial, and then obtaining the actual simple 510K that does not need a huge randomized trial. And you could see in month or months the amount of delay. Combine that with the expenditure from burn rate of startups per month, and you could see a staggering number that starts to face potential investors that will help you with your idea. When you look at, for example, the total cost, you could see that in each of those, there is a significant cost. To, the, to each of those 510K product, But looking for a PMA product, which requires the large pivotal trial for either non-inferiority or mostly, say, superiority trial, you can see that there is a significant, again, cost in time and in time and money, making these virtually unaffordable to the casual investor. But importantly to be a little bit more granular when looking at, for example, the actual clinical trial itself, even though you had the money and you have the time. There has been countless time spent on defining primary safety endpoint with back-and-forth discussion, size of the trial, statistical techniques, as discussed earlier, need for sham control or no control, and level of significance of confidence, all very important issues, but that take exceeding amount of time in this day and age. So when you look at the regulations and you say, okay, for my uh, reported 510K review time and approval, it will be three months. You ask the companies, how long has it taken? And you could see that even for a 510K approval, 10 months from first filing or 31 months from first communication regarding the device. This is in comparison to seven months for first communication in Europe for a CE mark. When you look at PMA and CE mark regulatory timelines, which is now PMA only, which is the more complex, from nine months allegedly to 54 months compared to 11 in CE. And when you ask larger companies and startup, what has happened really? What is the survey? what, what, What happened between FDA versus EU and why are this? Uh, why is there a problem, predictability comes to number one. And it's very hard to predict the regulatory path, and it's very hard to predict what is the study going to look like before you begin. So with this background in mind and knowing how difficult it is, number one hurdle being actually regulation in order to get the device approval for use and for sale, has been the financial issues. So when I got the first idea, you have to go in and apply for a patent, and then after you apply for the patent, nothing happens for a long time. you got to get the money in order to dev- make the device. So where do you get the money? Not too long ago, the medical technology sector drew $3.7 billion in investment, third to biotech and information technology. Last year, the medtech as a sector contracted by $1 billion altogether in investment dollars, One reason for this dramatic decrease has been the global economic downturn, which began in 2008, but that was not the only thing. MedTech investors reported that despite the economic crisis, there are factors contributing to this decline, including, very much importantly, the U.S. regulatory environment, and of that is less transparency and very unpredictable, therefore discouraging the investment. And looking, again, granularly at the numbers, you could see that in yellow... Medical devices the investment has decreased significantly compared to other non-health care, namely IT or uh, other like information technology, and we spoke about Google earlier today. So the development of new technology of any type is a difficult and fragile process, and the development of a medical technology is more fragile as well. A major reason for that is regulation. There is a balance that has been given with the responsibility of approval, but clearly, as Paul Yock said, that this is a very difficult balance to meet. And from hand playing one of the Morgan Thaler Venture partners, it said, when I first started as an entrepreneur in the early 1990s, the amount it took to get a product all the way through a PMA was $30 to $40 million, which is now it takes even for a 510K. So we're seeing a doubling of the cost in a tighter in the economy environment with less money available in the venture capital. And we've already hit that point with innovation and multiple investors that took the regulatory pathway and say the new technology could be meaningful and could be helpful to patients, but we just can't even take a chance on it and therefore we will not invest in it. So for all these reasons, and part of really the, the conclusion or at least how I'm trying to get you to see about how difficult it is today to be an innovator and start in startups... For all these reasons, as the medical device industry keeps struggling to adapt to these forces and serious venture capital drought, investment in medtech, as I said, has decreased 40% since 2010 oh, and seven, and it will continue to be so, as seen in this study. Venture capital received by biotechnology has declined 28%, while software and IT. Startups in 2010, 11, and 12 have increased by 75%. So as a result, myself, my colleagues, and others have had to look at more creative solutions to this problem and this financial drought. Generally, entrepreneurs in this sector have been taking more debt on themselves, self-funding, and have been looking for cash in unusual places, including Incentive investment funds overseas, like in Europe, as well as personal investment from high net worth individuals or so-called angels that are replacing venture capitalists. One of the biggest shifts has been a closer collaboration between entrepreneur and their backers with potential strategics, the larger company, who traditionally have been acquiring these later stages in the lifecycle of the startup. So we have called this as a risk-sharing model, and this brand new risk sharing model has led to funding deals, in ex- early funding deals in exchange to board seats, ongoing involvement early on, and potentially future acquisition rights at a discounted premiums. So, the upside of this model is in this new paradigm financial security for the startup that gets funding very early with access to industry expertise, which would have otherwise been difficult to access in the standard venture world. You went on, you did your own thing, and then they evaluated whether it is worthy of acquisition. This is not the case nowadays, because it is clearly something that you have to deal with earlier. So what I call the introduction of smart money has made things a lot easier to compensate for the downturns and the headwinds that I spoke about. However, like everything else, to an upside, there is a downside. Significant, and it is significant since such early deals often curb the startup financial upside in case of success. In this model, there are no multiple bidders, thus, no run up in acquisition price at the end upon success. So, from the strategics, the big company's perspective, this model works very well. It allows them earlier access, earlier close collaboration, and importantly, better visibility regarding the true potential of the technology as it is being developed with more awareness of possible early flaws in the process and not have to deal with it with extensive due diligence at the end. So in a recent interview, a senior manager at Boston Scientific Corporation stated that his company is looking, quotes, to tie up with startups much earlier than in the past. We might have an earlier stage collaboration. The startup may give up the hope of a home run if and when we acquire, but they gain financial security all along the way. So I will finish here by giving you one vivid example of this new investment strategy that we are living today from a startup perspective. And this is nanoSTEM acquisition for $188 million in cash at a price set all the way back in 2007 agreement with St. Jude Medical. But St. Jude financed the bulk of the 50 million in cost needed for European approvals and studies of its minimally invasive pacemaker technology. In exchange for such an investment, St. Jude, back in 2011, gained in the negotiations the right to purchase nanostim within 90 days of regulatory approval in the EU. Had venture investment been available back in 2011, NanoStem would most likely have sought more traditional funding, a deal that would have kept the door open for at least two times, three times, or four times that price. And I'd like to finish by saying perhaps a better exit price the uh, founders of NanoStem will have, but again, at what dilution? What would have cost to create series A, B, and C financing ultimately to exit. What would have been the take of the initial investor and founders in this classical venture capital model versus this more risk-sharing investment paradigm? So this is, again, as a Metronic Senior Business Development said, we are putting more risk, more at risk earlier because nobody else. And this is really how much it has cost venture capitalists of time and money over from or 1995 to 2010, showing that actually the venture capital classic model does not work. So in conclusion, after you get the lightning bolt, what happens? Patients in the U.S. wait an average of two years longer than Europeans to gain access to new U.S.-created medical technologies that you're thinking of developing. Due to substantial and complex regulatory pathway, it costs millions more to bring innovative products to the U.S. compared to Europe, and these are the actual numbers. And no wonder VC investments have moved away from early medtech startup, given the intensity of capital needs, timeline to exit, and return on investment. Thus, if you do have a great idea, think about this risk-sharing model as described that may be the best alternative to get you started and to get your startup going at 2014 and beyond. Thank you for your attention.
0: No sound. There it is. Um, Are there any questions for Maurice Bookbinder on this topic, Uh, Krishna? Well, Maurice, you've considered the medtech sector as a sort of a monolithic sector, but are are there, you know, putting taking an optimistic note, are there components of the sector that are doing particularly well? You know, one thing that comes to mind is telemedicine. Uh, Perhaps, uh, you know, the uh, the approach to hypertension. In the renal artery, etc. So, do you see certain areas of the medtech sector that, despite all the doom and gloom, uh, will continue
1: to do well in the next five, ten years? Uh, that's that's a great question. But I spent some time defining what I mean by medtech, and I think that, for example, this telemedicine does not involved in that. But will there be a subsectors that will do better? Obviously, yes, because the world will still be here tomorrow. And I think there will be people who are profiting and growing, and there will be ideas that are germinating. But what I'm saying is that really it's not all doom and gloom. Is that you have to be more specific. You cannot do the gunshot approach, and you have to be to think about your idea early, to understand what your idea is worthy of, and then partner with those who can take it to the next stage earlier on, and then you can heighten that ultimate goal of the positivity that you're talking about. But this gunshot approach of I had an idea, just go in, and that is no longer valid in 2014 and beyond, due to all the stuff and, and, and issues that I, I. And we didn't even talk about reimbursement. That's talk about doing.